Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. The topic for today is automation and utopia, human flourishing in a world without work. We have the honor of welcoming John Danner, a senior lecturer in law at the National University of Ireland and also a co-editor of RobotSec, Social and Ethical Implications. And he also has a blog and a podcast series called uh, Philosophical Disquisitions. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lars. Thanks for inviting me to participate. So throughout history, and especially since the Industrial Revolution, we have been worried about the end of work, let alone decent work for all. And concerns are particularly acute now as frontier technologies, convergence, and Kurzweil's law, law accelerating returns, which we explored in a recent episode with Stephen Cutler, uh, seem to be close to a tipping point, as many argue. So, so far we've been wrong, but maybe this time we're different. Our guest today, John Danner, certainly thinks so. He welcomes this development in contrast to many others. His book, Automation and Utopia, he explores the issues facing us as more and more work can be automated. In an elaborate and mind-opening thought experiment, he proposes that a workless future is not only possible, but possibly utopian. So, tell us a little bit about yourself and what prompted you to write this book and explore these ideas generally. So, uh, as you say, I'm a academic working at a, a law school in, in Ireland, but I, I suppose my research interests are, lie primarily in the areas of the philosophy of technology and the, in particular, the ethics of emerging technologies. And that's what I've been researching and talking about for, you know, the best part of 15 years now. In terms of writing this book, which was, was published a few years ago, you know, it was published in 2019, uh, and I probably wrote it in 2017, 2018. I, I suppose I was, the writing the crest of a wave of, of hyper and automation and these a number of books have been published in previous years arguing that a workless future was imminent due to all these developments in AI and robotics, you know, reports from McKinsey, from the World Economic Forum were all kind of pointing in this direction as well. And I suppose what I was interested in was having a different perspective on this debate instead of purely focusing on whether this workless future was inevitable or was going to happen as a result of technological changes, I was interested in considering whether it was something that was desirable. And I suppose there are two sides to the desirability of it. Like One thing that people commonly discuss is that if a lot of people are unemployed, they'll lose their income. We need to do something to replace their income. We talk about welfare reforms like the basic income guarantee as being a way of doing that. But also work is a source of meaning and value for many people. And so what do you replace their sense of meaning and value with if they no longer work? Uh, and so that was more what I was interested in exploring. What, what would the sense of meaning and value be? And would it be desirable to transition to a, a post-work economy? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting thing to explore in a way that you sometimes do a bit provocatively by starting out with things like human obsolescence is imminent, but that's not really what you mean. You actually mean that automation has the potential for 
allowing humans to explore other things that are meaningful or maybe more meaningful than they are now. But you see this also as part of a historical trajectory. So in the beginning of your book, you emphasize with some striking numbers how fast things are changing and how fast humans have taken over. Maybe you can give us a quick taste to, to frame the discussion. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some dispute around the exact figures, but you know, the impact that humans have had on the biosphere over the past you know, 10,000 years seems pretty striking, certainly since the agricultural revolution. Uh, there's this statistic that I repeat in the book that approximately 99% of the terrestrial land mass or biomass, sorry, is taken up by humans and you know, livestock or animal and plant populations that are under human control. And obviously there have been a number of well-known, well-documented extinctions of certain natural populations and eradications of wildlife over the past uh, 10,000 years as well, uh, which are a testament to this impact that humanity has had on the globe. And this is why it's a very popular phrase now that people talk about us living through the Anthropocene, right, that we're, we're living through an, you know, a geological era in which humanity's impact on the biosphere is undeniable. And I think you then argue that we're at the tipping point and obsolescence has have already started. And you, you talk about a couple of examples from agriculture, manufacturing, professions, government and services. And you end up in a paradox. The technological forces that, are, that have made our planet-wide dominance possible are the very same forces that are hastening our obsolescence or our imminent obsolescence. You say this is a good thing. And you defend four propositions central to your book that we will arrange the rest of the discussions about. Could you give us a quick overview of these uh, propositions and then we'll explore each one in more detail? Yes, I mean, the first proposition is that the automation of work is both possible and desirable. And I suppose if you wanted to be pernickety, you could say there's two separate propositions there, both possible and uh, desirable. The second proposition is that the automation of life in general is a less positive thing. So if the influence of automating technologies extends beyond the workplace into other parts of our daily lives, that's a less positive thing. Uh, and then the other two propositions in, in the book discuss different utopian futures. So I talk about a cyborg utopian future in which humans blend with technologies, merge themselves with technologies to become more like the machines that are currently replacing them. And I argue that that has some potential, but has a number of drawbacks. And then a contrasting utopia, which I call the virtual utopia, which is where humans sort of cede territory to machines. They step back from the world of work and accept an alternative you know, mode of existence. Uh, and I make the case that it's a more positive development than negative. All right. So let's pass to part two, where we explore the first of those uh, propositions. Automation of work is both possible and desirable, which in fact is two propositions. So we could say... The first one is Proposition 2A, um, the question of possibility for automation of work is possible. First, I was wondering about, uh, you have uh, a very interesting discussion about what we actually mean by work. And you end up in the definition of any activity performed in exchange for an economic reward or in the hope of an economic reward. I was wondering why so specific? So this is sort of an idea rooted in, in 
philosophy and like problems with philosophical definition of a word that is over inclusive. So, you know, when you talk about the automation of work, a lot of people think that you're referring to like any sort of physical activity or anything that's difficult that humans do. And I want to be kind of clear that that's not what I think. And, you know, there are many kinds of activity that we do that should be rewarded economically, but aren't. So I, I'm, I do have a sort of narrow definition where I'm, I'm looking at work under the modern kind of economic capitalist system, which is an activity that has attached to it an economic reward. So under my definition, work can be anything. There's any task at all that you can imagine can count as work, as long as it has this economic contingency attached to it that you receive some economic reward as a result of it. Now, as you point out, the economic reward has sort of two functions. One is is a practical function that it gives you a medium of exchange that you can use to purchase the goods and services that make your life tolerable or even, you know, happy and flourishing one, uh, depending on how much you're paid. And it also has a signaling function, um, partly a signal to you that the thing that you're doing is valuable it may also be like a kind of social signal, sending out a signal to other people that you are a worthwhile person or a person that should be respected because you're doing something that, that has this value attached to it. What I would say is that while there are practical and expressive values to being paid, there's also a fairly significant negative or, or downside to the economic contingency of work, both in the sense of uh, uh, contributing to work's obligatoriness that people in many countries don't have an option but to work and work in certain jobs that may not be particularly rewarding or fulfilling to them but that they have to out of economic necessity and we focus on the expressive function of of income that also has a significant dark side in that some people are deemed to have more worth on the market than other people so you're kind of introducing this stratification and uh, inequality in the, the the social system as a result of of, of that um, expressive function and you know one of the things that's been well documented in recent times is that the amount of income that certain people earn is several hundred times thousands of times more than a lot of other people earn you know CEOs of Large corporations can expect to earn hundreds or a couple of hundred times more than the average worker in their organization. Um, are, but are we really claiming that they are worth so much more than these people? So I think there's a very significant dark side to the income and the uh, reward that is attached to work. Uh, again, I mean, even to consider an example from the past couple of years, that has been very relevant. You know, the amount of money that nurses, let's say, get paid relative to software engineers at Facebook is, I would say, out of alignment with what their actual um, social value was, certainly over the past couple of years. And the argument in the book is that we need to break that connection between things that we do and economic rewards in order to live a more fulfilling life. I wanted to move on to your argument and your conviction that the automation trend that we have already seen and that many are optimistic about is going to continue. Why are we at the tipping point right now? It seems like so far we've been predicting the end of work since even Aristotle talked about it, Keynes talked about it. We've been worried about it for a long time. Right now here in Switzerland, you can't find people to do most manual labor. In the U.S., I think it's the same thing. After Corona, no one really expected that. We seem to be incredibly good at finding new things to do. At which point do you think this is going to end? Do you agree, for instance, with people like Nicholas Bloom that are saying that ideas are getting harder to find? What do you think is happening? Are we at a tipping point? Yeah, so I'm so I'm not a techno-determinist or fatalist. I don't think that we're on a you know, definitive arc and we can predict a point in time when 
work will be automated. I, I also think that that concept is fuzzy. I don't envisage a future in which nobody works. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think you could have a future in which significantly f- many fewer people are as a percentage of the population work than currently do. And we always we already see some evidence of this effect in terms of uh, labor force participation rates in various countries um, either declining or being much lower than people typically think in terms of the percentage of the adult population that actually work. You know, it seems to hover somewhere between 60 and 70 percent in many developed countries. And, you know, if you have a future in which it's only 30 percent labor force participation rate, that seems plausible to me, and that that would be a very different future to the one that we're currently in. I suppose I tend to classify that as a, a future where we can seriously reconsider what it is that society is about, and you know, what's the purpose of education, what's the purpose of, you know, what does a mature, fulfilling human life look like in, in such a world, such as a society. Now, in terms of, like, are we at a tipping point? I think, like, there are certain con- trends in the development of technologies that suggest that it is possible now to automate many more tasks associated with jobs than we have been able to in the past. Uh, there are claims that there are kind of hard limits maybe to what we can automate, that, you know, certain kinds of human process or human activity, either certain physical activities or mental activities that are, that are difficult to automate. And that might be true, but even if it is true, I think that it represents a relatively kind of narrow range of tasks that are relevant to economic production. And I also think it's overstated, if you want to talk about this in more detail, um, and this might be a similar point to Stephen Kotler's point, is that people often focus on individual technologies and their inability to do certain things when, when you have to actually factor in how technology is changing the way in which people do work in general across a range of tasks and convergent trends in technology, which enable the automation of entire roles within a workplace. Uh, it is true that we can probably always find some other things that people do and attach an economic reward to that. And there might, you know, there might be certain kinds of luxury goods that are associated with uh, human labor. So instead of getting your coffee made by a machine, maybe there's like a, a higher priced luxury good where you get it made by a person who will have a conversation with you. But that, I think that would kind of represent a small range of options for people in, in the same way that let's say like, you know, bespoke handcrafted furniture might be something that a lot of people desire but it is a relatively expensive good, and most people get the, the cheap, mass-produced, machine-produced stuff. Okay, all right. Let's pass to uh, the second part, the question of desirability. So you go further than the classical argument of harm and contingency strategy, and you think the necessity strategy goes too far, and you posit the idea of the structural badness of work. What do you have in mind there? What I mean by that is that work in the modern world, where, where work is defined as activities performed for economic reward takes place within a a marketplace, a labor market that is bad and getting worse. And it's getting worse largely as a result of uh, technological developments. So the structures within which we bargain for labor and in which we get paid for what we do, they are, they've got bad incentives and bad outcomes for more and more people. Even if it's the case that there are individuals at the moment who are doing very well and are thriving, the kind of general trend is, is bad and declining and getting worse. That's, that's the essence of the, that kind of claim that work is structurally bad. Okay. So it's not only about the people doing hard and underpaid labor. It's also about well-paid people that still are within the constraints and still feel compelled to work and might not be able to do something that might be more rewarding for them. Yeah, so I mean, you're going to mention that I, I distinguish my claim between like the, 
claim that work is contingently bad, there are certain forms of work that are bad, and that's undeniably true. There are certain jobs that are very unpleasant. I don't think that all forms of work are necessarily unpleasant. I, I just tend to think that most forms of work have kind of negative features attached to them, and that these negative features are being accentuated by changes within modern work pra- practices, and in particular, the way in which technology changes our jobs. And that's that's true for people at the high end of the income bracket and for people at the lower end as well. So I have a kind of more elaborate argument for why I think work is, is bad in the modern world in the book. And I have like five separate arguments as to why it's bad, but I can sort of distill it down into two main categories. One is that work is oftentimes not optional or it, it's not something that we do voluntarily uh, or that necessarily reflects our you know, deeper desires or inclinations or c- capacities. And then also that because of the impact of technology on work, work is becoming kind of less well rewarded, less stable, less secure and more competitive as a result. And that is true for people at, at kind of the lower and the higher end of the labor market, if you want to, in terms of uh, income. It seems to me that there is at least a minority for which work definitely has meaning for many of us, gives us purpose and mastery, sense of accomplishment. And in particular, it seems to leave a void. And many, especially men, when they fall into unemployment, you see extremely high suicide and depression rates. So it leaves a void. So the question is, if we're going to have end of work, we're going to have to fill that void. How do you envisage that process, especially in the transition? Right. I think that it is the case that in the modern world, in most countries, most of us, maybe particularly true of men, attach our sense of self-worth to our our work and our, our sense of kind of economic value or viability, greater sense of competitiveness, uh, greater need to kind of climb a social hierarchy to gain a sense of self-worth. Although ironically, men, men are probably the, certainly young men are the, the class of workers that are perhaps most affected by current trends in, in automation, uh, which is, you know, this is something that's been commented on by a number of people, a number of, kind of cultural conservatives in the U.S. have kind of highlighted this phenomenon of men, no, younger men no longer working, but also more progressive uh, voices have pointed this out as well, that there, there's a significant underemployment of young males by comparison with historical trends, the generation that's being maybe uh, most impacted by this. Um, I, do, like, I, I do think the void of meaning is something that we have to address, and that is in part what my book is trying to address, in that I'm trying to see, is there some sort of viable alternative outside of work for having a sense of meaning, a sense of flourishing, a sense of self-worth. Uh, one thing that my book doesn't address is this transitional phase. Is this was the question that's more pertinent and of more interest to policymakers, which is like, how do you get from where we are now to there? Uh, what are the steps that we take? How unpleasant will it be in the short term? Um, how do we ease that transition? So let's pass to the second part of your second proposition. Automation of life more generally poses a threat to human well-being, meaning and flourishing. And you say here, I I can quote from your book, the bottom line is that when I argue that work can and should be automated, what I mean is that work in the economic sense can and should be automated. I do not mean that all forms of activity, be they pleasant or unpleasant, can and should be automated. Indeed, this distinction becomes absolutely crucial. Could you explain what you mean there? Where exactly do we draw the line? Uh, why is it good to automate work but not good to automate other things? Is Siri, for instance, is that bad automation? Uh, well, 
there may be some examples of technology that are necessarily bad across all human activities, but I, I think that's unlikely. It's more likely to be the case that there are certain kinds of technology that are bad in certain contexts um, or have a generally pervasive negative effect, and that negative effect needs to be addressed. I suppose what I have in mind with, with that uh, comment is that you can still more or less divide people's lives into two, you know, two components. There's kind of the work life and then there's the rest of life, you know, home life, family life, yeah. hobbies, friends, socializing, these things. I mean, I, I, I do appreciate for many people these things kind of work together, uh, but there, I think there is some uh, reasonable separability between these things. I suppose uh, what I'm arguing in the book is that the automation of work or the removal of the need to work for economic reward would be a good thing, but the automation of life in general, so like the impact of automated technologies across all of our lives, I think would be negative. And I suppose like the the extreme illustration of this, which is satirical, but I think is uh, captures a, a truth, like most sat- forms of satire, is the version of the future that's depicted in the the Pixar movie Wall-E, right? So in that movie, you have robots everywhere. Like most activities are automated. It seems to have very kind of complex or effective forms of AI. What has happened in that future? Well, number one, humans have despoiled the planet. It's no longer habitable, so they've moved on to these large colony ships and they're trying to find a, a place to live. But the humans themselves have become grotesquely obese uh, creatures that go around in these automated chairs that feed them fast food and entertainment all day. And they don't need to really kind of think or do anything for themselves anymore. They just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride and the technology takes care of everything else. It flies the ship, maintains the ship, looks after everything uh, for them, look, looks after all the kind of material needs. And now, as I say, that that's a satirical depiction of the future, but I think it does capture something of the truth when it comes to the potential impact of automation on life. If you automated every facet of your life, you wouldn't need to do very much apart from just focus purely on, let's say, I suppose, hedonic pleasure from moment to moment. And it's not clear to me that that would be a very meaningful or flourishing life. Great. So let's talk about what you mean by utopia. What is important to understand about how we derive meaning and how we flourish and agency and what what are the things that will have to be essential to replace uh, the void and to uh, to build a utopia? Yeah, so I, I suppose my views on what it takes for a human being to flourish or find meaning in life are not particularly radical or novel. Uh, th- these are ideas that philosophers have been debating for a very long time. If you, if you want, you can say there's kind of two main schools of thought on what makes a life flourishing or meaningful. You could have a subjectivist view that what makes your life worthwhile is how you feel about it, whether your desires are being satisfied, whether you're experiencing pleasure from moment to moment. Or you can have an objectivist theory that what matters is the effects of your acts or your life on the world around you, whether you produce things that are valuable, whether you make life better for other people, uh, whether you you know achieve great scientific insight or discovery, produce works of art, or whatever the case may be. So it has to have some objective effect on the world around you. And then, I guess, is a third school of thought that says it's a combination of the two things. You have to ha- live a kind of subjectively satisfying life by doing things that are objectively valuable in the world around you. So I, I tend to adopt that hybrid school of thought that you need a bit of both. You need a bit of subjective flourishing and you need a bit of objective flourishing. 
So that that's kind of one element of it. In terms of um, you know what would make our life utopian, a lot of things have been written about this over the, over the years. And to simplify, I just draw a distinction between two kind of theories of utopia. One is what I would call a, a blueprint model of utopia, which uh, is very common in what is known as the kind of utopian literature movement, which is largely kind of fictional depictions of societies that are allegedly utopian. Uh, Thomas More's book Utopia, which is the origin of the term, is the the classic version of this, where you know he describes somebody voyaging to a distant land, and he talks about the organization of this society. It's kind of a neo-feudalist society that he depicts, and it's all about the, the mechanics of how that society works and tracing out the blueprint for that society, what it would look like. And a lot of people have taken up that baton and you know written blueprint utopias, like here's how society should be organized and arranged in order for life to be flourishing, to be uh, meaningful for for all people. I tend to reject that blueprint model of utopianism in favor of something I call horizontal utopianism, which is that there is no single blueprint for the best society. What is the kind of ideal society is something that's subject to change, evolution, adaptation over time. And I think part of what it is, is that ensuring that society is always expanding into a new horizon of possibility, that there's always, there's, we have an open future, if you like, instead of a constrained or closed future, uh, one that is full of possibility as opposed to one that has to fit a certain mold. Um, and so that that's, that's what I have in mind when I talk about uto- a utopian society. It has to be one that uh, is open and dynamic and en- enables the sort of meaning and flourishing of the people living within it. I can think of two other theories that have come to the conclusion, directly or indirectly, that a utopia is impossible. We have uh, Robert Nozick, I think, who, who basically argued that people have different preferences. They will inevitably come into conflict, and a world with a conflict is not a utopia. How do we avoid this utopia filled with uh, conflict and, and competition? Yeah, I, mean, so I don't think that you um, inevitably avoid conflict. Uh, I mean, Nozick's theory is an interesting one because I do take that up in the final chapter of the book. So when Nozick was a skeptic about the possibility of having a blueprint utopia where you have a society that fits under a single set of rules because there are some people who won't like those rules and will want to do something else. And so that's where you get the conflict from. And so his, his solution to that was that, well, you don't try to create such a society. Instead, you try to create a mechanism that allows people to create whatever society they like and they can kind of join or exit from societies as they please, which I guess avoids Sartre's problem of no exit, that you're stuck in the same room with the same people forever. I don't think you'll ever eliminate conflict from human life. There'll always be tensions and competitions between people, but you can channel it into less destructive forms and you can also maybe minimize the kind of excessive nature of it by allowing this flexibility. And this sort of very much ties into my critique of work as well, by the way, in the first part of the book, which is that well, what makes work bad to a large extent is it's the sense of necessity or a lack of options or a lack of freedom that many people have with it. I think you can fall into the same trap when you get into utopian thinking that you, if you think that there's this sort of straitjacket that you fit a society into in order to keep it like, you know, sated and happy, that's where the mistakes arise. You have to allow for flexibility and dynamism and the ability to change things if people wish. And that, that avoids that kind of problem of a lack of autonomy or freedom or no exit. Yeah. 
So let's pass to um, the first kind of utopia that you envisage specifically. You talk about the cyborg utopia and uh, the virtual utopia. What is the cyborg utopia and how do we build it? Yeah, before I answer that question, I, I, like, I do just want to say one thing that I, I think is important to the framing of the book, uh, because I, I don't like why do, why do I talk about the cyborg utopia and the virtual utopia in the book? Uh, the reason is that it's to do with that crisis that I reach at the end of the first part of the book. So the, the problem that we face in the, in the modern era is that we've, we've created a set of technologies, mainly focusing here on AI and robotics. So technologies of intelligence that try to replicate or replace human intelligence that threatens our existence kind of in an existential sense, like what our purpose is on Earth and what our value is uh, to one another. And so what I say is we have two options. We either fight back in a sense to compete with the machines that are replacing us. And that would be to follow the cyborg path, which is to try and merge ourselves with technology and become like the machines that are replacing us. Or we can retreat from the competition that we used to play in or used to participate in to an alternative mode of existence, which is what I call the virtual utopia. But that, that's why I talk about those two paths. But I, I want to be clear that I, I don't think it's as simplistic as saying that there are these kind of just two paths. I think of the cyborg utopia as a set of different possible societies or futures, and I think of the virtual utopia as also a kind of set of different possibilities uh, as well. But you know, for the purposes of framing the discussion and making it comprehensible to people, it's useful to simplify into these kind of two choices, these two paths that you can go down. So I may have, like, in part answered your, your question as well in that explanation of what the cyborg utopia is. When I just say, like, the cyborg utopia is, is a, a world in which we try to meld ourselves more with technology. Obviously, we we are a very technological species. Humanity has always been a technological species in a sense. That's possibly what one of the things that is most distinctive about us. But most of the technology is external to us. It's things that we interact with using a biological system, which is essentially the same as it has been for a couple of hundred thousand years, probably. Uh, it's been pretty much the same. And with cyborg technology, we're trying to just deepen the level of integration and uh, reduce that barrier between the biological human and the technological world that humans inhabit. And I mean, you can think of examples of this where like people literally, you know, replace parts of their brain with technology. People are already doing versions of this where they're replacing parts of their sensory uh, um, modalities, like you know, ears with cochlear implants or uh, different kind of eye implants that people can have that uh, integrate themselves with technology. I'm just talking about ramping that up to an extent where you can sort of completely break down the barriers between a human and a piece of technology. But you talk about some positive aspects of this. The cyborg artist Neil Harbison, colorblind, with a surgically implemented antenna. Tell us a bit about that example. Yeah, so Neil Harbison is a very uh, interesting case study. Um, he, he identifies as a cyborg, and he was the founder of something called the, the Trans Species Society, which is about you know uh, recognizing people who consider themselves to be post-human in some sense, so no longer part of the the human species. He was born colorblind and he has this antenna that he has kind of plugged into the back of his head that goes uh, kind of around the front of his skull. And what it does is it transmits light waves into sound waves. So it basically transforms color into sound. So it allows him to hear color in essence. And I suppose what I find interesting about him is he's an artist and he's using this to explore like a, a new way of being an 
embodied, a new way of existing in the world that is technologically accentuated, that allows us to experience and interact with the world in a different way. This is a, you know, it's a very sort of nascent technology. It's interesting, but maybe not hugely impressive. Uh, for people who who want to like you know upload their minds to a computer or something that we seem to be a relatively long way away from that, although there are intriguing developments in this uh, space. And what I find interesting about his his case study though, and what, what I see positive about it is that it's it's kind of in, enhancing the space of possibility for humans that we're no longer constrained to one mode of embodiment and one mode of interacting with the world. We can actually explore a new kind of set of adjacent possibilities, a new new form of life. We can experiment with what it means to be human. And I see that as a positive thing, something that kind of fits very much with this horizontal model of utopia, that we're not set and fixed into a certain way of existing, that we can explore new possibilities, new horizons. And so I, I see that as a positive thing. And I think it, in this case, it's clear that he's embracing it, he's celebrating it, and he still retains agency. It's still him. But I think your worry on the other side is what you call humanity on steroids, uh, superintelligence, happiness, longevity. So I guess what would be okay is I read recently that they're working on an implant that you can put in an infant's brain that has um, genetic uh, disposition to Huntington's disease, which is a death sentence by the age of 50. That, of course, is a good thing. But then a gray zone is starting, and you can head towards maybe David Pierce's uh, humanism, and I'm quoting for the book here, competitive upgrading and doubling down on, on the worst features. What do you have in mind there, and how can we avoid it, do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, again, this sort of ties into the critique that I have in the first part of the book with the, the modern world of work and the way in which it's being made worse, I think, by technology is that it limits our freedom of choice, but also then forces us to participate in a competition which has winners and losers or relative winners and relative losers, if you want to be a little more sophisticated about it. Um, my concern about cyborg technologies, you know, technology that, that melds humans with machines in some way is that they won't allow for a radical transition to kind of a post-work future or a different way of existing. So at the moment, let's say a lot of knowledge workers compete on education, you know, that they're more education, more credentials. Well, maybe one of the things that they start competing on with the development of cyborg technologies is more implants, like more um, you know, technological upgrades uh, that that enables them to be more effective workers. You know, they can stay awake for longer or something, or yeah, they have cyborg exoskeletons that enable them to do more in physical activities. Uh, and so it won't allow us to escape from the world of work. It'll allow us just to kind of increase the competitiveness within the world of work. So that's, I think, a negative thing about it. And the, I mean, another thing, I mean, in the book, I, I have a more complex critique. I like doing things in five. I think I have five separate critiques of the cyborg utopia, I, like I had five critiques of, of work. But the, the other thing that I find problematic about the cyborg utopia links back to something that you just said, which is that it's a question of agency and control. And so Neil Harbison has agency and control over his cyborg implants. But a lot of us won't have agency and control over the cyborg implants that uh, we have access to. They'll rely on software that can be updated or controlled by companies to whom we have to kind of sign away or consent for them to do things to us. So this is something that already like happens to some extent to people uh, with different kinds of implants, right? 
and there's you know there's some protection for it at the moment uh, or people who rely on certain kinds of digital assistance technology as well you know they they have to consent to the possibility of these things being uh, changed uh, or the technology the company no longer making the same software or the same implant so they can break down and they can't be repaired so an Irish journalist actually who, who I think put the point well in a book he wrote years ago where he sees this as the, the paradox of the transhumanist movement, which is often associated with this desire to turn humanity into technology, is that there's a paradox inherent in transhumanism, that transhumanists want us to escape from the biological prison that we find ourselves in. They see the human body as something that is limited and fragile and that needs to be transcended. But they're going to replace that biological prison with a technological prison, that we're, we become technology that is owned and controlled by other people. And that seems to me to be a very serious, important problem when it comes to the cyborg utopia as well. Good. Well, let's pass to the virtual utopia, part uh, 3C. So the cyborg utopia, as we just said, seems pretty far away, whether it's going to be positive or negative or, or some of both. But you say virtual utopia could be around the corner. And indeed, we're talking about metaverse, a concept I still don't quite understand. How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, this is where like I, I risk kind of alienating a lot of people in that I, I have a very long discussion in the book about what I mean when I use the word virtual. And I tend to contrast two different senses of what virtual means. And it's, it's a, in a sense, it's an inherently paradoxical concept or idea. You know, when people talk about virtual reality, like that sort of seems oxymoronic in that virtual suggests that something's not real, but then you're appending it to the word reality, which suggests that it is real. So there's something slippery about the concept itself. I suppose you can distinguish two versions of what I would call the virtual utopia. One is, I think, the metaverse Facebook Mark Zuckerberg idea of virtual reality, uh, which is we all live inside some computer simulated world wearing headsets or you know immersive suits or something maybe we could have some version of like the holodeck on star trek that you you sit in a room that we have a virtual reality projected on the walls around you as opposed to wearing a headset whatever but either case it's it's a it's a computer created world that we live in and i i do think of that as a kind of virtual existence uh, but i think that that's not the only kind of virtual reality that i'm interested in I take a view which actually has like a deeper set of roots in kind of anthropology and human history, which is that there's aspects of human life that have always been virtual in the sense that they involve imagining worlds that aren't there, that don't exist in the real physical world, and to some extent projecting those imagined worlds onto the physical reality. So philosophers have spoken about this for a very long time, but there's significant parts of like human social life, and ritual life, cultural life that depend on imagined rules, imagined uh, structures that don't really exist in, in the real world. Like money, let's say, is a simple example here. Like, what is money? Money is is largely a subjective construction of human minds. We all agree upon something having value that we exchange between us for the purpose of making our economy work, but it doesn't really exist in. In physical reality, I mean, it's often attached. In order to keep track of money, we often have like physical tokens of it. But nowadays, most of us don't, right? Most of us don't have physical tokens. We've, we've largely transitioned to 
to a cashless world. We just have representations of numbers on uh, bank balances. Okay, so I, I would view money as a kind of virtual reality. So I, I think virtual uh, reality does not necessarily exist inside a computer simulation. It involves, to my mind, creating a, a system that is again largely the product of human imagination that doesn't conform with the structure of the real world in which we live. Uh, that involves abstracting away from that structure to some extent. Uh, and so I try, I, try, I try to adopt that kind of broader definition or understanding of what a virtual yeah. reality is. I think there's another implicit point here, which I think is important, that the distinction between the virtual world and the, the real world is actually a false dichotomy or a misleading comparison. You talk about Yuval Harari, who um, says that almost everything we perceive or think has some kind of simulation, something artificial or something abstract about it. It could be anything from ideas like socialisms to metafictions to law, but not legislation, as Hayek would put it. Law would be things that you just don't do, even if they're not written down. All of these are virtual in some sense. And you talk about uh, the example of Sherlock Holmes. Of course, he doesn't exist in some sense, but in a very real sense, he also exists. So it's misleading to think about there being a clear distinction between the two worlds. Uh, yeah, to, to kind of continue that idea, people talk about like online life or life lived through the Internet versus offline life. I mean, back in the late 1990s or something, you could have spoken maybe about those things being two different worlds. But now for most of us, you know, the online life is as real as real life used to be in a sense. So the, you know, the friendships or connections that you have with people online are often for many people now as meaningful or as significant to them as the connections you would have with people in the real world. Um, uh, and that is something that society is struggling with and older generations maybe don't fully grasp or understand, but it, I think it is just a truth about the modern world. Yeah. Good. So how do we fill this virtual world? You say it involves some surrender of control, but the gains outweigh the losses um, because of what people are free to do. So what will people do? Who will have control? Who will build the system? You also talk about the opportunity for world building. Talk a little bit about how you envisage this virtual utopia once it has come to some kind of fruition. Of yeah, I suppose like one of the main parts of the, of the argument is that one of the things that we can do is play games, in a sense. That the virtual utopia is a utopia of games or a utopia of play instead of a utopia of work. And where games are defined or conceptualized in terms of a framework that was first set out by a philosopher called Bernard Suits in the, the 1970s, where, in essence, a game is the voluntary triumph over arbitrary obstacles. We say, th these are the rules of the game. This is what we do. If you're playing tennis, hit the ball in this way over the net. Within these lines, the other person doesn't return it. You get a point. It's completely arbitrary. There's no reason why it exists in that way. You can invent lots of different games that follow different rule structures. We play these games. We derive a lot of meaning and satisfaction from them. Uh, and we can create more of these games using new kind of virtual reality technologies. And I think that's a way of kind of obtaining a form of a new form of human flourishing that is free from the pressures of work. That doesn't mean it's free from conflict and competitiveness. I want to make that very clear. But um, I think it, it can kind of eliminate a lot of the, the negative features of the current world that we inhabit. So that's the, the gist of the argument in, in the book, which is to develop or flesh out this idea of a utopia of games in more detail. 
Yeah, I think that the challenge seems to me that you can do a lot of things with games. I get the point about games in the extended sense that you use them. But by removing work, you also remove quite a bit of structure that might be important to us. If you remember uh, Nietzsche and, and Durkheim at the end of the century, they talked about anomie because they were worried about the loss of religious belief now that we had science that seriously put it in doubt. What is going to replace sort of the structure and the strictures and the, the guidelines that work gave us and that religion might have given us before? Or maybe Polanyi's point about the commercial society that it's actually not a luxury to have all kinds of choices because to a certain extent we'll be overwhelmed by all of the opportunities and we'll be lost. How yeah, do you think uh, we can deal with that? Yeah, I think that's true and I think that's at the heart of existentialist philosophy is this crisis of meaning derived from the notion that we have this complete freedom to choose. Uh, and that's sort of where the, the anomie and the existential crisis stems from, is that the recognition of that choice. I mean, in a sense, what the existentialists are talking about isn't that problematic insofar as we still live in a world that is full of lots of different constraints. But with virtual reality technology, a lot of those constraints will be limited. So it seems like the, the existential crisis would be ramped up or accentuated. What, uh, what I would say is that I think humans will replace pre-existing structures with other kinds of structures of meaning. And that's what we have always done. And in a sense, this is already happening. If you pay attention to the kind of existing world of games that people are, are participating in, uh, whether it be kind of online multiplayer games of various forms or gaming communities, fantasy sports games, uh, these are all just you know, some examples. People do kind of find these niches and find these communities of meaning already and i think it's oftentimes a lack of awareness and also maybe a lack of imagination to kind of think that we're going to necessarily be kind of landed in this new existential crisis it's already happening you have these utopia games building up i think from the ground up it's already something that's in existence it doesn't strike me as something that it is impossible to realize and i mean that's one of the features of the modern world as well that the capacity for people to find their own communities and find their own niches through technology um, has been greatly accentuated. That's creating problems in political structures in terms of polarization and maybe a lack of social capital and, and social glue, if you like, which, which will be challenging. Um, but it's, it's already the case that I think that people are finding these kind of micro communities of, of meaning. Mm. So let's end with your epilogue, which is uh, based on Borges' uh, short story. Tell us about it. Uh, yeah, so the short story uh, depicts this kind of hypothetical world consisting of all these hexagonal libraries that contain all these books full of 400 pages of text with just letters arranged kind of randomly on them. And uh, the people in this society come to the realization or have the suspicion that the library is infinite and it contains an infinite number of books. So all possible books exist in this library, but the problem is that any particular book that you pick up off the shelf will be nonsense. And this kind of lands them in, I guess it was a kind of, kind of existential crisis because, uh, you know, they, they can't actually find what they're looking for. If they're looking for knowledge, they'll find, they can find books that confirm what they want, but also books that deny or tell, tell the opposite story. And what I say in the book is that I, I see the story as a, as a meditation on the meaning of life in a universe of infinite possibilities. And this kind of speaks to your point about the existential crisis. 
which is that what's happening in the libraries of Babel is that people are looking for meaning in the books around them. They're hoping to find the truth in one of these books or to stumble upon real knowledge in these books. But that's impossible given the kind of infinite possibilities and the random place that they find themselves in, in the universe. And I think you can view our kind of current predicament as being somewhat analogous to the predicament of, of the citizens in Borges Library. You know, we, we've been trying to kind of unlock the mysteries of the universe through technology and scientific progress, but we're kind of reaching a certain point now where the technologies that we've created and the kinds of insight that we've realized are kind of passing beyond our comprehension. And this is kind of leading us into this sort of desperate scramble to find uh, meaning and value. And so what I argue is that we've been looking in the wrong place, kind of looking for meaning and value in the objective world, in, in the library of books around us, the book of knowledge and so forth, and that we have to uh, find it somewhere else, which is this kind of re- retreat to the virtual. John Danner, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.